So, since I don't live in Georgia anymore, I don't really keep up with what's going on out there as much as I would if I were still there. So, I was quite surprised when I found out that the Democrats have a black female as their candidate who's running against the, I think, Secretary of State, Brian Kemp. I uh, don't really know anything about either one of these people other than Brian Kemp was on practically every form I've ever filled out incorporating a business. Other than that, I don't know much about the man. But there were some people who were, uh, let's just say, miffed about uh, this lady, Stacey Abrams, who, who's the candidate, she was somewhere and she said something to the effect that um, people have to resort to getting jobs in agriculture or uh, housekeeping to make ends meet or maybe not to make ends meet, but to, to make a living. That's what she said. She said, People, it's a shame people have to resort to either agriculture or hospitality to make a living. And a lot of people got up in arms about that, thinking she was disparaging farmers, which actually she wasn't. She was just pandering to Mexicans because what she had a difficult time trying to relay is that when she talks about jobs in agriculture or hospitality, what she's talking about is doing jobs like picking blueberries. Well, actually, they don't even do that by hand anymore, but uh, working in slaughterhouses, processing chickens, or you know, making up beds in hotels. Uh, these are the kind of tasks that the general white or black population in the native Georgians won't do, and they are typically filled by Mexicans. And she perceives the Mexican vote as key to her winning the, the election. And it was, it reminds me, there's a funny story one time. If you've ever lived in South Georgia, and you've ever had to drive to work, say, on US-1 early in the morning or really any time of day, and you've gotten behind a chicken truck, um, you'll, you'll know real quickly how much of a nasty mess those things are. So just a truck in and of itself, you have to... <laughs> You have to slow down and pull off the side of the road so your vehicle stops getting hammered by feathers and everything else flying off of that truck. But I remember there was one time, I don't remember which city it was. It was somewhere in middle Georgia. Ice ice came in there and did a roundup of all the Ill illegal immigrants and there was only one industry in the town, and it was uh, a chicken processing plant. 
and everybody that worked there was Mexican. So the place was essentially out of business since there was no one to work there. And they couldn't get any... The the jobs weren't paying enough money for anybody white or black to work there. So <laughs> they, they went and... And this was in the newspaper. They went and rounded up some homeless people, and the homeless people were going to fill those vacated jobs that the Mexicans once held. So I, after I got back into my chair from falling on the floor laughing, I didn't think too much more about it, and then for some reason it popped into my head a few months later maybe six maybe a year later when the new article came out and lo and behold the homeless solution did not work (laughs) and so the processing plant was very much in search of people to do those jobs and they were even thinking about raising the wages So Abrams was trying to, in a bad way, say that low-paying jobs in agriculture are are like a last resort, and it typically falls to Latinos to do those jobs. And I've said it for, for years, the misconstrued rallying cry of a lot of people in in Georgia that Mexicans are taking their jobs is such a cop-out because if you want a job in a processing plant, they have it. If you want a job framing houses, all you got to do is show up. They'll give you one. The, the, the point is, is that it's just an excuse. People don't want to do those jobs. But I've never had a Mexican pull me over driving down the highway. I've never had a Mexican, you know, give me a service charge for a bounce check. I've never seen Mexicans as being the scourge of the state of Georgia. If you look at the numbers, they're 6% of the population, and I think 90% of that 6% it lives in uh, Atlanta on Buford Highway. Um, it's just... It's just a boogeyman, and I don't think many contractors would even have any labor at all if it weren't for Mexicans. So if if they are on services, six percent of the if the entire six percent of the Mexican population were on you know defects, then it still wouldn't amount to very much, and that's not the case because most of the times people who are illegal don't want to go to the government because they're they're in hiding in the first place. So it's, it's really just a bunch of nonsense that in Georgia, you know, in Georgia it's like this. Either they're taking everybody's jobs or they're, using all these services. So, I mean, (laughs) how does it work both ways? That's what I've never understood. But Abram, she's 
pandering to that segment of the population to get a vote. And I just looked online, and today is the day before the election, November the 5th. And it's all of these polls have her and Abrams, I'm sorry, her and Kemp in a dead heat. And the key word in that sentence is polls. Because where do they take the poll at? Decatur? Clarkston? Atlanta? You know, in my opinion, she doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell of winning the state of Georgia. I don't even think it'll be close, to tell you the truth. But it's amazing that she's even become the candidate at all that that's what impressed me um i think you know if i don't know what her opposition was like or if she's just the democrats sacrificial lamb in this in this particular race but i've never heard of her and as I was saying, I listened to one of her clips, and it, right away when I heard her speaking, I was like, <laughs> she's not from Georgia. So I looked her up, and she's from Michigan, but she moved to Atlanta when she was, I guess, a teenager because her parents moved there. And anyway, it reminds me that I used to have this job in Atlanta, and it was in Midtown. And when I moved up there, I was living in Sandy Springs. So anyway, I got this job. My buddy got me a job working at a television station, and the station was called AIB, which stood for Atlanta Interfaith Broadcasters which essentially, as you can tell by the name, was a religious uh, station. It was not necessarily a Christian station. It was, as it says, interfaith. So we had programs based on all religions, but mainly either Christian or Jewish. And I was uh, hired to flip change tapes um in a television station the programming is done it's probably automated now or it probably was automated back then at bigger stations but this was a little tiny station and it was based in a church and that church was right there at the split where Peachtree and spring uh divide in in um in Midtown, there used to be, uh, Equifax used to be right there. They moved to a new building, but there was a church right there, and I can't remember, I think it was called Peach Tree something. Anyway, so the television station was inside the church, and there was also a radio station in there too. But when I say station, this was, you know, it's kind of a stretch. We had this little small studio. It was probably, oh, I'd say 
20 by 20 maybe something like that there were three cameras in there and there was a little booth for the producer and and there was also another little station i'm sorry stage in the other room that was set up that we really never used at all because it was kind of a storage location then they had this little office area and then in the back they had a a a suite for editing video so anyway i got this job changing tapes and actually the tape room was in another little room it was like a little closet it was probably i don't know 12 by six something like that and then the equipment was there was a rack full of um tape machines back there that I think there was like mm, there were two tape machines a TBC a time-based corrector and some of this other stuff that they needed to send the signal and what you had to do was you'd have tapes and these these was I think they were I don't remember exactly they were like VHS tapes but they were bigger so they're like instead of being three quarter, I think they were an inch. And so you'd have customers who would pay to have their their program shown on our station. So each one of those programs would come on a tape and you'd get the tapes ahead of time and you'd set them out. And at, say, at 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock, you had to play, say, Dale Bronner, who was a preacher in uh, Atlanta, probably still is. Bronner Brothers, they they have fortune based on hair products. But Dale Bronner was a preacher, and they always played, they always rented space on our station. So that was one of the broadcasts I had to play all the time. So say it starts at one o'clock and you'd have to take the tape that was playing out pop in say like a a commercial sometimes it'd be like a psa in the other machine play that psa it'd run for like two minutes then you had time to take the other tape out and pop in the new tape cue it up and get it ready and once the psa ended you hit pause and play at the same time on the other one so you, you had this you tried to make it very seamless so it looked like it was uh, you know automatic which after a little while it it became pretty easy because my buddy he was good at it and he showed me the he showed me the ropes and so i was pretty good at making all the psas and the um the programs line up and it looked really good and you get to pick your own PSAs, and we had, you know, 50 of them, probably more. And you just figure out what you wanted to do based on the amount of time you had to fill. So I usually did that from like 5 o'clock in the afternoon to, to midnight, and that was my job. And, you know, basically just sat back there in that, little room and everybody had already gone home so you'd be the only person there so you could pretty much do what you want to do so if i had an hour long show you know i could (laughs) 
I gotta go get in the truck and drive around and you know get a euro or something for supper and, and make it back before the uh, program ran out. So I did that for a while, and I had a boss named Angela, and she was a black lady. And when my buddy hired, well, brought me in to fill the position. You got to remember, he was from Atlanta, and he he was, you know, he wasn't Southern, so to speak, and he really didn't let them know that I wasn't from Atlanta. And so when I got there, you know, with my twangy accent, my boss, she didn't care for me, but she didn't, she just, she was prejudiced. <laughs> In other words, she prejudged me based on my accent. And so her and I didn't really get along. And, you know, I wasn't trying to not get along with her. It's just that she was real short with me. And I really didn't have, you know, any reason to know why she was being that way other than the fact that you know I soon surmised that she was this this militant black chick and so as time wore on and they kind of got adjusted to me and found out that they were kind of judging a book by its cover we actually became friends and she was she was a pretty cool person. Um, she had graduated from Clark University, the historical black college in Atlanta. She probably majored in political science. I'm not positive. She had gone to the projects and stuff like that and doing a lot of community outreach and stuff. She was a real activist sort of person. And anyway, after a while, our cameraman... He got another job. I think he went to the public library downtown or either in uh, public radio, Georgia Public Radio. I'm not sure. But our cameraman, he, um, and I'm not making this up, the cameraman was blind. And don't ask me how they managed to do television broadcasts with a blind cameraman, but they did it and so anyway Angela comes in there one day and she goes Les you want you want to be our cameraman and I said well you know I don't have any camera experience as you well know and she said well don't worry about it you can if Bob could do it and he's blind you can do it <laughs> I said okay yeah sure I'd, I'd love to try to do that as a matter of fact so that's how I became the cameraman at Atlanta Interfaith Broadcasters, and that was a cool job. Um, the cameras they had, there were three cameras. There was a camera on the left, a camera in the middle that was stationary, which was a wide shot, and there was a cam camera on the right. So the way it worked, they had several uh, shows that were... Actually, Angela did a couple of those shows... She'd have a guest, and she'd be interviewing a guest, and basically it was two chairs, you know, facing each other, 
kind of at an angle with maybe just a little flower in the middle as a you know as a set decoration and the camera on the left would shoot the host and the camera on the right would shoot the guest and I was in charge of micing up the guests and doing all the levels and white balancing the cameras and all of that stuff so it was it was a lot to learn because you know there were since there were two cameras there should have been two cameramen but I, I ran both cameras and then you've got this headset so the producer is sitting in another room watching the whole thing on tv and she's talking into your headset and she's saying okay and she can switch back and forth between all three cameras so maybe when it comes on it'll be a wide shot that shows both people and then as as it commences you know she'll cut to the host who's you know reading the intro and so i'd have the first camera shot would be like a headshot of of our host and then then i'd take the headset off walk around behind the other camera and get on the second camera and set up or you know zoom in a little bit on the uh guest that kind of thing but once pretty much once you had the um shot set up as long as the guest didn't move very much there wasn't that much to do because it was pretty straightforward this wasn't any you know cutting edge stuff but that was a pretty cool job because you know how many opportunities are you going to get to be a cameraman at a real studio and or i mean a real television station with a real studio and that was that was a great experience but after that as i was saying angela and i got to be pretty good friends and one of the things that we used to do she had this show and i can't remember the name of it but anyway the premise of the show was she would go around to a lot of african-american churches around atlanta and interview the pastors because they were getting you know along in the tooth and a lot of these churches were really they dated back you know to i don't know probably the late 1800s and a lot of these places were really crazy nice buildings architectural buildings of of a of an era that has has passed and most of the time they were in these neighborhoods that were pretty dilapidated and but but one of the last remaining you know bright spots in those places was usually the church and she she had devised this program years before and she'd been doing these things for years but as needed i would go with her and set up a portable camera and we'd interview or she would interview these old preachers these old black preachers and 
I would run the camera and and do the recording. And so I had an opportunity to go around to a lot of just a myriad black neighborhoods and do these recordings of these old preachers. And that was something I hadn't thought about for a long time until today. And, you know, these, these aren't the kind of neighborhoods where white boys were welcomed with open arms. So I, I, you know, there was some trepidation occasionally when we'd be in these places, but it wasn't an issue, especially since we, you know, walked into the church with camera equipment. So I got, that was a real good opportunity for me to see a part of that town that I don't think many other people like me had the opportunity to go in and, and, and see. And on top of that, a lot of these guys, these, these, these preachers were probably, you know, they're called reverends, but these, these guys were probably 70 and up at the time. And this was in the early nineties. And so a lot of most of these guys were probably well let's just put it like this all of these guys were 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 prior to the civil rights movement so these guys would have grown up under you know quite different circumstances when they were younger and and in the south and they they had some really great stories to talk about and and I'd say almost to a man they were all very just very generous people and some of them were just characters I mean there was <laughs> there was this one guy and I can't remember who he was but he said he said something about um somebody said Pastor, why are you carrying a gun? He said, well, you know, I have this gun, but I don't shoot anything but cans. African-Americans, Mexicans. <laughs> I mean, they were cars. They they really didn't have this the agenda that you'd suspect that they might, at least the guys that I filmed. And part of that whole era for me working at that television station was an eye-opener because I was probably, I don't know, 23. So I'd just be bopping along through life, and I didn't really have uh, political leanings left or right at the time. I'd just gotten out of the Army, and, you know, it was not really something that I paid a whole lot of attention to. And coming into that environment, working at AIB, it was ultra-liberal. And that was the my first real exposure to a, a, an ultra-liberal environment like that. And it was, it was so different from 
everything else I'd experienced. And, you know, it. a lot of the things there annoyed me in a lot of ways because, number one, I was practically always on the butt end of a, somebody's, uh, you know, smart mouth because of my accent. But then I also realized that most of the people who were that way were just really the only the only way I can put it is that they're really self-loathing is is the best way I can put it there's one girl there in particular she was she was just really a spiteful girl but she her whole thing (laughs) she had this whole you know she's in a a band and she had all these get-ups that she would you know she's trying to promote this image and she was especially just real real down on men especially me (laughs) i don't know if she ever made it into music or not she was already 30 she was an angry girl and i thought angela was pretty angry too and but there was another there was another few people there that who weren't and they were they were pretty happy-go-lucky people, and um, just the whole experience was really neat. We had this toaster in the back, which was, I think, a hundred thousand dollars at the time. You could do it now on a laptop, but we had this brand new technology they brought in, and it was called a toaster. And it would this is when graphics, I mean, good graphics, started to come in on. You know, computer graphics started to come in on on television. I would sit back there and play with that thing every every night, and I got I got where I could use it okay. I never really edited with it or anything, but I learned how to make uh, you know like uh, well we call them chirons, but the um, the graphic underneath the uh, person's name that. Today they're they're just crazy with all the graphics. You watch a sports program, you see all those graphics. But it started as a as a like this real expensive computer that was huge, and you know you had to keep the AC on. It was it was a neat machine, and my buddy learned how to do that, and he got so good at it that he went into business for himself. The guy that got me hired. But I was thinking about the Stacey Abrams thing, and that reminded me of my uh, time spent at Atlanta, interfaith broadcasters going all around Atlanta and interviewing black preachers. And like I said, I hadn't thought about that for a long time until today, and tomorrow is the election, and I don't believe Abrams is going to be Georgia's new governor, but... We'll just have to wait and see. Uh-huh.